Would you pray with me? Thank you, Father, for amazing privilege that we have to be your children. It is not because of what we are or what we've done. It is because of your great love toward us. We were filthy and we were defiled, and yet you went after us. And you have taken us and you have adopted us and you have made us your sons and daughters. And we praise you for that. And we praise you, Lord, for your word that you teach us what you have done for us as we study these pages of Scripture. I, Lord, ask, Lord, for this passage that as we open your word, I pray that you would speak. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would touch each heart here because you know where every person is. You know what every person needs to hear. And I pray, Father, that we would respond appropriately. As we look at these responses of people who responded to your coming, some in a positive way and some in a negative, Lord, I pray that every single person here would respond to you in faith. And if there is someone here today who has not yet trusted Christ, we pray that even today they would be born again and they would believe. We ask, Lord, for us who are saved, who are redeemed, who are children of God, that we would once again be reminded of your kindness toward us, that this would be a time of praise because you have done great things for us and you continue to do that. Bless this time of preaching. I ask for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Richard Griffin spent 14 years as a personal protection officer for Queen Elizabeth. Very often during summer, Queen loved to travel to Scotland and spend some private time there in her vacation home. And as would often happen, she liked to go on a walk and a picnic during those vacations. On one such walk, Richard was accompanying the Queen when they ran into two American hikers who were traveling the country. As often, the Queen would stop and she would say hello and ask them how they're doing, where are they from. So she struck up a conversation with them and asked them where they were from, where they have been. And so as they're talking, they turned to her and it was obvious that they did not recognize her. And the American goes and says, and where are you from? She goes, well, I live in London, but... I have a vacation home just over the hill over there, so I just came here for a visit. Like, well, how often have you been coming here? She goes, oh, since I was a little girl, I mean, over 80 years I've been here. And then thought for a moment, he goes, well, since you've been coming here for so long, you've probably met the queen. She goes, uh, well, actually, I haven't, but Dick here, he meets her regularly. <laughs> the guy turns to Richard and he goes, listen, you've met the queen? I mean, what is she like? And because Richard has been with the queen for a long time, he goes, well, you know, she could be cantankerous at times, but she does have a lovely sense of humor. And before he knew it, the guy puts his hand around him, he takes the camera, gives it to the queen, and he says, would you take a picture or two of us? <laughs> well, eventually, Richard told him to take a picture with the queen without telling them that she was the queen. And the queen never let on, and then they took their pictures, they walked off, and then the queen goes, man, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when they show those pictures to Americans at home. <laughs> you see, it is one thing to be in the presence of the, king and not, of the queen and not recognize her. But it is something else to be in the presence of the king and not recognize him. As we come to our passage of scripture, that is exactly what happened here. 2,000 years ago, the queen, not the queen, but the king showed up. The king of heaven showed up to earth. And the way most people responded was just like those two 
American hikers. As we look at John chapter 1, and that is where we are, we find ourselves today in verses 10 through 13, we have been presented with the king. We have been presented with the king who is the word, who is God, who is the life, who is the light. And we said this was none other than Jesus himself. Now, while there is an overlap between these two sections in the prologue, the first nine verses and the last nine verses, we could basically say that in the first nine verses, we are introduced to the pre-incarnate God. John reaches back as far as he can to the very beginning. And he says, when there was very beginning, the king was already there, Jesus Christ. And then in the second part of this prologue, he introduces us to this king who came and put on human flesh. And that's why we call this section here the incarnate God. In the first nine verses, he said that Jesus is eternal God who is distinct from the Father and who is the creator of all things visible and invisible. Last time we looked at verses 4 through 9 where Jesus Christ is the self-existent God. And by self-existent, we mean that he does not depend on anyone for his existence. He is God because he is the source of life, both physical and spiritual. And that life is manifested as the light which came into the world. That's verses 4 through 9. Now we finished last week with verse 9 where we read this. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Now, we identify this as the first coming of Christ. And although incarnation explicitly is not mentioned until verse 14, John lays the groundwork for incarnation in this verse. Now, when he says light came into the world, the world here is identified not just as creation or as the universe, but he's speaking specifically of humanity, of people who are under the domain of the devil himself. And that will become even more clear when we look at our verse today. Here's the question. How did people respond to the light when he came into the world? And in our verses here, verses 10 through 13, John records three responses to the coming of Christ, which we will examine today. John identifies three groups of people in these three verses. And you can picture this as these three concentric circles. The first one is the large one. You have the world. Then he zeroes in on the nation of Israel, and then he looks specifically at the elect, or he looks at specifically at those who received him, the smaller group. Now, I don't want this just to be an intellectual exercise for us all, where we're like, okay, I get what this word means. But I want you to read these verses and listen to this while examining your heart, because you are in one of those groups. You are either responding the way the world responded, you might be responding the way Israel responded, or maybe like the third group, as you will see in verses 12 and 13. And that's the reason why I phrase the points that you have there in your bulletin this way. Point number one that we will examine is this, the world did not recognize Christ. Do you? The nation of Israel rejected Christ. Did you? The born again received Christ. Did you? If we take all this and we summarize it in one statement, it would go something like this. You must be born again to receive Christ since the natural man does not recognize but reject him. You must be born again to receive Christ since the natural man does not recognize 
but reject him. Read with me verses 6 through 13 of John chapter 1. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's begin by examining the first response. The world did not recognize Christ. Do you? Look with me at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Now, the word world appeared first time in verse 9, and we looked at it briefly last time. And this is the word that is going to be repeated again and again in the Gospel of John. Seventy-eight times you will run into this word, world. Now, because context determines the meaning of words, this word world is used differently in different contexts. So you can't just say it means one thing everywhere. And just to give you an example of this, for example, this word world can refer to the entire universe. In John 17, verse 5, we read this, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So the world here refers to the entire creation, the universe. It could also refer to physical creation. For example, John 13, verse 1, speaking of the earth, he says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour has come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus is leaving the earth after he's crucified. John 16, verse 33, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. So here the world is referring to while you are here on earth in this life. In another sense, the world could refer to the system that governs this world. For example, John 12, 31. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So what is he talking about? He's talking about creation. No, he's talking about the system that governs this world, which is ran by the devil. In 1 John 2, 15, where he says, Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He's not telling you not to love creation. He's telling you not to love the system that governs this world. The word world can also refer to unconverted humanity. Listen to John 7, verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. So obviously he's not talking about believers here, but those who are unconverted, he says, they hate me. In John 15, verse 18, he says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now the system hates you, but the way that hatred becomes evident is when the people who are under that system exercise that hatred towards you. In another sense, the word world can refer just to a large group. Listen to John, 17, John 12, 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, 
You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. I mean, what is he saying? Every single individual everywhere, and, and not just individuals, the trees. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, look at this huge group that is following Jesus. If we continue to let him perform all the signs that he does, everyone is going to follow him. So in this case, just referring to a large group. In another sense, the word world can mean general public. John 7, verse 4. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. His brothers are saying to him, why are you doing this in this little group, just showing things to your disciples? Why don't you go public with it? Show yourself to general public. In John 14, verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? You're only revealing yourself to this little group here and not to the people who are outside. In another sense, that's number seven, by the way, if you're keeping track. The word world can refer to Jews and Gentiles together. John 1.29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in this sense, because if you have a Jewish mindset, you're thinking about, no, Jesus is, or the Messiah who's coming, is going to be Jewish Messiah. He's coming for Israel. And he says, no, 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 it's not just Israel. It's the sins of the world. We see that clearly in John chapter 4. When Jesus goes to Samaria and preaches there, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you say that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Notice the Samaritans declare Jesus as the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of all men. Now in our text here, in John chapter 1 verse 10, the word world simply refers to human realm. He said he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Now we know this is the case because the word world appears four times in two verses. If you look at verse 9 and verse 10, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. So notice the word world and man they have to do with one another. Verse 10 says he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Now we know that John is speaking of humanity as a whole here because notice he highlights their response. And the response is they did not know or they did not recognize him. You see, man is the only creature made in the image of God with capacity to respond to God. Animals are alive, but they're not moral creatures. Animals die and they're gone. They're not held responsible for their actions. But because you are created in the image of God, you're able to understand, you're able to relate, you're able to have a relationship with God. And therefore, when God shows up, He holds you accountable for how you respond to Him. Because we see here response of the world, we can say that this word world has to do with specifically with humanity, with people, because it's not like, okay, the trees didn't respond. In fact, they did. And the seas responded to Christ. And we'll see that in the text. The world here refers to human realm. Now notice here in verse 10, we have three statements about the world. Three statements about the world. Number one, he says, he was in the world. Now obviously, he here refers to Jesus himself. Because that's the whole passage here is about Christ. Now when the passage says here that he was in the world, when it says Christ was in the world, some take this verse to mean that Jesus Christ was present in the world before his incarnation. 
Now, if you take this verse and apply it to Jesus as God, it's possible because you can do that. Jesus is God, and therefore, by definition, he's omnipresent. He is everywhere. We saw already the fact that Jesus is eternal, which means he always existed. And because Jesus is the one who spoke this universe into existence, we can say that Jesus was present in this creation prior to his incarnation. Now, because of that, there is something that is called general revelation. General revelation about God, which means that all men have innate knowledge of God. All man means all men. Every single person has innate knowledge of God. No one is born atheist. You have to go to school and you have to go to college to learn that there is no God. But even little children understand that there is God. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Verse 18 says that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why? Because they know the truth, and because they want to avoid accountability, they suppress that truth. Now, the way universe functions reveals God as the creator. Listen to what Paul said in Acts chapter 14, verse 17. God did not leave himself without a witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Your favorite meal is a testimony to God. That's what he's saying here. Because there is no other explanation to that. Now, most people in our world today would rather believe something like Big Bang than believe this truth. And they want to do that because, as I said, they want to avoid accountability. Now, while it is true that Christ was present in the world before incarnation, I don't necessarily think that that's what John is talking about in this verse. And the reason why, because we said that in verse 9, he already alluded to his coming into the world, and the coming in verse 9 refers to his first coming. So if you look at verse 9, it says, There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. And in verse 10 says, He was in the world. In verse 9, He was coming into the world. In verse 10, He was in the world. So when he says here, the word was in the world, he's saying when the word came, when Jesus Christ came into this world 2,000 years ago, that's what this is referenced to. Notice the second statement about the world. He says, and the world was made through him. Now, since this refers to human realm, obviously what John is saying here, that all men exist because they are created by Christ. You are not product of evolution. You are not product of Big Bang or some other fanciful theory. No. You exist because Jesus made you. You exist because you are made in the image of God. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Tony preached a sermon, Wonderfully Made. And we went through all the intricacies of how God takes a baby and creates baby in the womb. Now, just by looking at the complexity of your body, you have to be a fool to say, well, it just comes out of nothing. It just comes together on its own. No. God creates people wonderfully in his own image. Now, John already made this point earlier. If you look at verse 3, it says, All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. John already said that all created beings have their beginning, and their beginning is in Christ, because Christ was the one who created all things. And all things, obviously, includes all men. So when he says he was in the world, which means Christ came into the world. And by the way, all people that exist in the world, they exist because Jesus made them. Here's the third claim. 
the world did not know him. Now this is a very broad statement here, which accurately reflects reality. I mean, just consider for a moment the reception he should have received when he came into the world. I mean, most people celebrate celebrities. You have your favorite football players, basketball players. Think about Super Bowl, right? All the cameras will be on all the big people today, right? And imagine if one of those people shows up and people flock to them. There are people, I mean, these people, celebrities, powerful people, they walk with security details. Why? Because they don't know who's running up to them. Because people, there's huge fanfare around them no matter where they go. Taylor Swift, huh? You see, when the celebrity, who is a mere person, shows up, everybody runs to him. Why? Because, wow, amazing person. But what do you think should have happened when the creator himself stepped into the creation? I mean, what should have happened? And so then when you look at the statement here, this is perfectly reflected in the response of the people. Creator himself stepped into creation. That's not Taylor Swift. That's not Donald Trump or Barack Obama. No. Creator himself. Now, because you know the Bible, because you've read the story, you know what happened at his coming. By and large, the people didn't recognize him. Now, you might say, well, at the beginning, they had an excuse because, you see, his coming was not like you would expect. I mean, if you were expecting God to show up, you wouldn't expect him to show up as a little baby on the backside of nowhere in some dinky town born to some girl that no one knew. That's not what you would expect. And you were like, okay, I get it why people missed him. But, you know, when his ministry began, he became a prominent man. I mean, the things that Jesus did, if you just think about and try to calculate all the things that he did, here's a man who cast out demons publicly, and all these demon-possessed people would run to him because they recognized him for who he was, and so he basically cast out all the demons in that territory. I mean, imagine how many people he healed at that time. People, large crowds were flocking to him, and he was, and he was healing them all. You can say practically he banished disease from that region. And then think about it, this is not modern day where, you know what, you're sick and go to the hospital and doctors can help you. I mean, that's 2,000 years ago. What hospitals, what doctors, what were we talking about? And here's Jesus who practically banished disease from the entire regions. And yet, most people didn't pay attention to him. The only people that pay attention to him who really loved their power and did not want to give it up. I mean, even Romans recognized Jesus. But rather than worshiping him as God, they crucified him, except that one soldier who finally declared, this is the Son of God. Now, when he says here, the world didn't recognize him, this refers to the response of the people. Because you can say everything else in creation recognized him. Remember that demons recognized Christ? They would always fall before him. And they always say, I knew who you are, the Holy One of God. You remember the nature recognized him? When Jesus commanded the storm, the storm did not continue to rage because like, oh, who are you to command me to? No. Demons would flee. Storms would stop because everyone recognized his power and authority. And yet there was one group, human beings, who did not recognize his coming. Now, I think it's safe to say that the world today reacts similarly to Christ as they did back then. The message of Christ goes out to the world, and by and large, the world 
does not know Christ. And even those who claim to know Christ very often do not know Christ as he is. Because very often, as we talked about this before, people create Christ in their own image. Oh, he was just a good teacher. No, he wasn't God. And if you believe Jesus, not as he is defined by Scripture, you do not recognize him for who he is. So unless you recognize Jesus as the Word of God, unless you recognize Jesus as the eternal, self-existent God, unless you recognize him as life, as light, you do not know Jesus. You do not recognize him. And the response that you have is similar to that of the world 2,000 years ago. So broadly speaking, you take this larger circle of people. They simply did not recognize Christ. There's a second group here in verse 11. And that is the nation of Israel. The nation rejected Christ. Did you? Look at verse 11. He came to his own. And those who were his own did not receive him. This is one of the most tragic verses in the entire Bible. Jesus comes to his own. What does John mean when he says his own? Now, you can't see this in English, but there are two uses of his own in this verse. You see that. He came to his own, and those who were his own. Now, the first use is in neuter gender, which means that he came to his own things, or he came home. He came to his property. That's what he means. And the second his own is masculine gender, which means he came to his own people. So what he's saying here, when Christ came, he came home to his own place, to his own territory, to his own land, to his own temple, and his people did not recognize him, or in fact, rejected him. Now there is a sense in which everything in this creation is Christ, is his own. Because he created all things, right? Verse 3 says he made all things. And therefore, if he's the creator of all things, therefore he's owner of all things. But if you've read the Bible, and I'm sure most of you have, you know that Israel was a special possession of God. It was his special people. They're God's people in a unique sense. And everything that they are and everything that they have belongs specifically to him. It was God who gave them their land. Did he not promise that to Abraham and then gave it to them? God gave them their cities. God gave them their temple. Everything that they were and everything that they had belonged to them. In fact, the miracles of Exodus chapter, I mean, you read from Exodus, the first part of the book of Exodus, is when God takes this nation of two million slaves and brings them into a promised land and gives them property for which they did not work, but simply because he promised It was God's inheritance. Israel was God's inheritance. All that they had was His. And you see, when the Son of God comes into the world, He didn't go to China. He didn't go to Russia. He didn't go to America. He went where? To Bethlehem. He went to His own place, to the city which He previously gave to David. And He comes to His own place. He did not come as a refugee seeking asylum. No, He came to his own place. And not only that, he came to his own people. The nation of Israel are God's chosen people. And we see that from the beginning of the Bible to the very end. 
The Old Testament is replete with references to such. When God sends Moses to deliver Israel out of Egypt, listen to how he refers to Israel. Exodus 3.7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. For I am aware of their sufferings. Therefore come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people and the sons of Israel out of Egypt. He says in Leviticus 26, 12, I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. The prophets repeatedly use this phrase to identify Israel. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 3, an ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Jeremiah 2.11, has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from my priests. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Joel chapter 3, verse 2, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. Micah chapter 6, verse 3, my people, what have I done to you? And have I not, and have I wearied you? answered me. One of the most amazing passages in the Bible is Amos chapter 3, verse 2. God says this, Only you have I known among the families of the earth. Nasby translates that known as chosen. Now, God was aware of all the other families of the earth. And yet he looks at Israel and he says, Of all the families of the earth, of all the nations, I have chosen you. You are my special possession. You are my inheritance. So when John says he came to his own, he says he came to his own territory, which he gave to his own people. How did they respond? Again, verse 11, he came to his own, and those who were his own, yes, they were his own, they did not receive him. Again, this is a summary statement which will be developed all through this gospel in the following chapters. The nation of Israel, represented by their leaders, not only did not receive Christ, but they rejected Him. The nation at that time was waiting for the Messiah. You have Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah would come and Messiah would reign. And in this gospel, we have an interesting insight in John chapter 6. You can turn there with me. John chapter 6. You remember John chapter 6 is that chapter where Jesus feeds 5,000 men and probably as many women and children with five loaves and two fish. And you remember how the crowd responded. Chapter 6 verse 14 says, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Verse 15. <coughs> so Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. I mean, who wouldn't want a king like that? 
I mean, he could just feed multitude with five loaves and two fish. You see, that's what these people wanted. They wanted a king who would come and who would bring deliverance to them. One who would feed them, one who would protect them, one who would kick out the Romans, one who would return Israel back to their former glory days. But that's not what Christ came to do in his first coming. Yes, there is coming a day when he will do that, but that's not why he came the first time. And so when Jesus sees that they're about to come and take him by force to make him king, he leaves immediately to the mountain. Because that's not the kind of king he was. That's not what he came to do. But that's what people wanted. And as you read through the record that John will put for us in this gospel, you will see that Jesus has constant clashes with the Jews. Notice the progression in this gospel. We'll look at a few passages here. Look at John chapter 5. This is the first such conflict. In John chapter 5 verse 16... We read this, for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now notice here, they're starting to persecute him. Verse 17, but he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. And verse 18 says, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father making himself equal with God. The Jews were persecuting Jesus, and here's their first attempt to kill him. Fast forward to John chapter 7. Look at verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. Why? For he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. These are his own people in Jerusalem, in their capital, in Judea. His own people are seeking to kill him. But because it's not yet his time, Jesus leaves. He shows up in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. And in verse 30 it says, so they were seeking to seize him. In John chapter 8 verse 59 is yet another attempt on his life. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself. And went out of the temple. When Christ escapes this time, he try again. They try again in chapter 10, verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. He confronts them again. And in verse 39, they again tried to seize him. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. Finally, in John 11, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, they had enough. They convene a council together, and according to verse 53, it says, From that day on, they planned together to kill him. You know the rest of the story? The final rejection is recorded in Matthew chapter 27, verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and wash his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people, his people, said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. And they rejected Christ. That's why John says he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Question. Why did his people not receive him? Now you can answer this question on two different planes. On the human level, these people were 
blind, and they love their sin more than they loved Christ. Isn't that what the Gospel of John tells us? John chapter 3, verse 19, this is the judgment. What is it? That the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil and rejecting Christ is evil, hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. The Jews loved the darkness and hated the light and therefore would not come to Christ. They willfully chose to hate the light. But then on the divine plane, we can say that they were judicially blinded by God so that they could not believe in him. Now it is hard for us to understand this, but isn't that what Scripture teaches? Look at John chapter 12. John chapter 12, as you have seen when we did the overview, is the conclusion of Jesus' public ministry. In John chapter 12, he will conclude that ministry by preaching to them the final time. And then John says this in verse 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them. Now you remember the purpose of John's gospel? He says, these things have been written so that you may believe. All these signs have been written so that you may believe. And he says, the people who actually saw all these signs, though they saw so many signs, yet they were not believing in him. And you say, why? Look at verse 38. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. They could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He, that is God, has blinded their eyes, and He has hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their hearts and be converted, and I heal them. You see, it was not only that they would not believe, but there came to a point where they could not believe. God is sovereign over salvation, as we'll see even in our text here. They could not believe because God judiciously blinded them. Does this response characterize you? Perhaps maybe someone here who has been in a church a long, long time, and you've heard many sermons about Christ, you've been presented about the truth about who He is and what He has done, and just like these Jews, you continue to willfully, with your eyes wide open, reject Him. Do not think that your fate will be any different than the fate of the Jews who rejected Him. They rejected Him, and they were damned to eternal hell. So here are first two responses. The first response of the world, they simply did not recognize him. And they went about their life as if nothing significant happened. And then his people, who heard him preach, who saw his signs, who understood who he was, they willfully chose to reject him. Let's consider the final response. The born again received Christ. Did you? Again at verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in his name. Again, the concentric circles 
getting smaller and smaller. So you got the world, then you got the nation, and here's the small group of those who believed in him. Now verse 11, amazing opening, but. One commentator notes here, all those revealing buts in the Bible. They are small hinges on which great truths and destiny swing. Amen. You got this whole world that does not recognize him. You got the nation that rejects him, but, but as many. The word as many literally means whosoever. Whoever, as many. Within this group, you have Pharisees and you have Sadducees. You have the educated and you have the uneducated. You have male, you have female, you have rich and poor. You have Jews and you have Gentiles. Whoever, everyone in between. Now, in verses 12 and 13, there are three descriptions of these as many. Here's the first one. As many as received him. Now, in contrast to those who did not recognize and rejected him, this group received him. Now, many of you have doorbells, like ring doorbell, right? Somebody comes to your door and you open your phone and you look at it and you might not know a person and you're just like, I just ignore him. Who cares, right? There might be somebody there, you're like, man, dude, take a hike, right? And there might be somebody there that you open the door and you welcome home. Now, that's what he says here. They looked at the doorbell, and most people are like, oh, Jesus? Who cares? Ignore him. The Jews told him to take a hike. And these people here, they opened the door, and they welcomed him in. What was the result? It says, those who received him, those who opened their hearts, those who opened the door to him, to these people he gave the right to become children of God. The word there for right is authority. To the people who received him, he gave them authority to be called children of God. These people were privileged to become children of God. And notice the roles here. Children of God do not make themselves children of God. God gives a privilege to certain individuals to become children of God. You cannot make yourself a child of God. It is something that God bestows upon you. Now notice also that not everyone is a child of God, is it not? Because this would not make sense. If everyone is a child of God and he gives to some privilege to become children of God, it wouldn't make sense. Which means that not everyone is a child of God. Now, in one sense, everyone is a child of God by virtue of being made in the image of God. So if you are created by God, you are a child of God as creation. But because of the fall, because of sin, you are a child of the devil before you come to Christ. That's why Jesus had no problem to look at unconverted Jews and say to them, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. You see, unless you receive Christ, you are not a child of God. But when you receive Christ, you receive the privilege of adoption. You become a child of God. God declares you as his own. Now you might be asking, what does it mean to receive Christ? I'm glad you ask. Because John gives us the second description. To receive Christ, here's the second description. Even to those who believe in his name. Which means that to receive Christ is to believe in Christ. 
And when we're talking about believing here, this is more than just intellectual assent to a set of doctrinal claims about Christ. And how do we know that? Because demons believe the truth about Christ. They know more truth about Jesus than probably all of us combined because they were in his presence. They know doctrinal statements. But when we're talking about belief here, when he says even those who believed in his name, belief speaks of trust. Now, you trust a plane not when you sit on your couch at home, but when you actually get on it and fly halfway across the world. That means you trust. You trust your car not when it's sitting in your garage, but when you're driving 85 on the freeway because you're late. Right? That's how you know you trust your car. And when he says here, you trust Christ, not when you recite creeds, not when you put your you know, sign in the card. Not, no, you trust Christ when you say, Lord Jesus, if you don't get me to glory, I'm going to hell. When you take all your eggs, you put them in one basket and you say, Jesus, I'm going to trust you and you alone. No one else. And unless you get me to glory, I am not going there. That's what it means to trust. Trust means you sit down. All of you walked into this building, right, and you sat on those chairs. Nobody, like, checked the chair. Okay, do I trust this chair? No. That's what it means. You trust Christ. You sit on him. And you say, Lord, get me to glory. That's what we're talking about. And so he says here, even those who believed in his name. Notice, belief has to do with faith. Faith has to do with trust. And you might say, well, why does God require faith? I mean, it could have been so much easier. I mean, why couldn't he just say, well, just do this thing, right? i repeat this or say that. Why do we need faith in order to be saved? Now, when it comes to spiritual realities, we are dealing with things that we cannot see with our physical eyes, right? You cannot see God because God is a spirit. So you know that there is God, but how do you know that there is God? I mean, when was the last time you touched him? You didn't. But you know that he's there. You know there is eternal life. You know that there is heaven and hell. But how do you know that? You, you've never touched it. You've never experienced it. Why? Because those are spiritual realities that cannot be perceived with your senses that you use in this world. Scripture contrasts faith with sight. Remember what Paul said? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. We walk by faith. Not by sight. You see, if I can feel something, if I can touch this, I don't have to believe that this is metal because I can just like touch it right here. But there are realities that you cannot touch. There are realities that you cannot grasp with your human senses. That's why he says you need to believe those things. Why? Because you cannot perceive it with your physical eyes. How do you acquire such faith? Well, great question. You're asking all the right questions today. This brings us to the third description. Who were born? Look again at verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What distinguishes this group from the previous two groups? I mean, what is different about these people here that they received Christ and the previous two groups rejected him and did not recognize him? Is it their superior intellect or theology? Maybe it's their race, gender, white privilege. Maybe it's their heightened spiritual awareness. What is it? The answer is none of the above. None of the above. What is required... For such faith is nothing less than new birth. You see, a natural man has no capacity for such faith. 
That's why John says, who were born. This is the doctrine that we know as doctrine of regeneration. And it will be further developed in John chapter 3, the passage that we read at the beginning of the service. Now notice in this verse, John explains why this group responded to Christ. And the reason why they responded to Christ is because they were born again. Now notice first of all here, that we're born is in the passive tense. You did not cause your new birth. You were not the cause of your regeneration. Question, how much input did you have in your natural birth? Did you consult your parents about whether you want to be alive or not? Maybe your height, your hair color, or eye color? No, you probably were not even aware of your existence until you were like two or three or some later than that, right? You had nothing to do with your physical birth. Now, somebody said, well, you know what? Physical birth is different than spiritual birth, but let's play this out. Now, according to our verse here, what comes first, regeneration or belief? Now, when it comes to practice, it might all happen so quickly and so, you know, and like at the same time that it's hard for you to separate. Well, did I, was I born again first, then I believe? Or did I believe, then, then I was born again? And so it's hard to separate those things practically. But logically, we can do that. Logically and biblically speaking, we can do that. Now, although even here it's not a conclusive argument, look at the tenses of the verbs that are used here. Notice the word, the word believe in verse 12 is in the present tense, which talks about what's happening right now. But then when you get to verse 13, he says, who were born. That's aorist tense. Those who in the present tense believe before that were already born again. Regeneration precedes conversion and faith. You believe because you have been born again. Now, if you understand the nature of man prior to conversion, you understand why new birth is necessary. New birth is necessary because you are dead in your sins. Is that not what Scripture says? Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. No, you were not weak. You were not sick. You were dead. Now, you were a dead man walking because he says, in which you previously walked, according to the prince of the world. You were very much alive in your sin, but you were darkened in your understanding. You had no life of God in you. You were a son of the devil, and you carried out his desires. That's why Jesus looks at them and says, you are of your father the devil, and you want to carry out his desires. And because your will is subject to his will, and it is so intertwined, you love your sin so much that you consider yourself as a free man. I do whatever I want, when in fact, you are carrying out the will of the devil. Now, if that is your reality, you cannot, in that reality, all of a sudden see light. That's why when you are a dead man, like the picture that we use, in your blindness, if I'm a blind man and you have all those lights shining in my eyes, somebody needs to tell me that those lights are on, because I can't see them. And that's why it is. With the person who is unconverted, with the person who is the subject of the devil, the light needs to shine, and not only light needs to shine, something has to happen on the inside. There has to be new life that is given. You need new birth. And a baby, a newborn baby, begins to cry when it is born. So as a person who is regenerated, cries out to God in repentance and faith. The same John wrote this in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. 
whoever believes, present tense, that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Which means that unless you are born of God, you will never believe that Jesus is the Christ. You will be in the first group that doesn't recognize him or the second group that rejects him. You cannot believe unless there is new birth. Now, if that's the case, and it is, how do you become born again? I mean, what do you do to be born again? Look again at verse 13. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, John negates three possible causes of regeneration before stating the actual cause. And the reason why he has to do that, because most of the people in the world think that if you take the first three routes, somehow you can get access to God. And John says, hold on, let me tell you. This is not how you are born again. Here's the first. Regeneration is not the result of your lineage. Regeneration is not the result of your lineage. He says, who were born not of blood. What does he mean here? He means that your blood connections are irrelevant. It does not matter whether you were born from Abraham or from Muhammad. It does not give you advantage when it comes to being born again. And why does John have to say that? Because you remember there's going to be this group of people all throughout the gospel who are going to say, hey, we are Abraham's descendants. We are saved because Abraham is our papa. No, 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 no. Just because Abraham is your daddy, physical connection to Abraham does not guarantee regeneration. It does not guarantee salvation. Your heritage does not advantage or disadvantage you when it comes to regeneration. I mean, in our context here, it doesn't matter whether you were born to Christian parents or not. Now, is there a benefit to that? Yeah, because you heard the light. You heard the truth. Is there a benefit of being in the church? Yes. But you know what? You're not going to get saved because you are born to Christian parents. Regeneration is not the result of your lineage. Number two, regeneration is not the result of your effort. He says here, who were born not of blood, that's your lineage, nor of the will of the flesh. You see, you cannot work or will enough to cause yourself to be born again. You can't decide to be a good person now. Why? Because you cannot change your nature. Because by nature, you are a child of wrath. Prior to your conversion, you are dead in your sin, and you cannot change your nature. John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. You cannot change, a leopard cannot change his spots. Remember that passage? You cannot change yourself no matter how hard you try and no matter what you do. A spiritually dead person cannot cause himself to be born again regardless of how hard he tries. Regeneration is not the result of your lineage. It is not the result of your effort. Regeneration is not the result of others' effort. Well, maybe if you can do it, maybe somebody can do it for you. Look at verse 13 again. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. I mean, what if you go to a priest and he sprinkles you with water and pronounces some incantations over you and says, you are now born again. Is that going to do it? 
No. What if you subscribe, subscribe to some kind of a system that says if you follow us and if you do this, that, and the other, then we'll get you in. Is that going to do it? No. There is no system that can make you alive. That's why this but God is so glorious in this verse. What your lineage could not do, what your effort could not do, what others' effort could not do, God did. He says they were born, they were born. Why? Because God acted upon their souls. God is the only one who can produce regeneration. Listen to John 3, 8. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Like it's windy outside. You don't know where the wind comes from and where it is going. But all of a sudden you see things that fell over and you see the effects of the wind. He says you don't know where God moves and how he moves. But all of a sudden somebody begins to believe. And when that happens, you know that God was at work. That's what you're saying. It is God who causes regeneration. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Whoa. You can't come. You can't repent. You can't just decide to be a Christian. I have decided to follow Jesus. No, the only way you can decide to follow Jesus, if Jesus goes after you and if Jesus draws you, but on your own, you have no ability to do that. I mean, these are not my words. These are Jesus' words. No one, I mean, that's pretty exclusive. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Same chapter, verse 65. For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. You cannot come unless he draws. John chapter 10, verse 26, speaking to these Jews who rejected him, listen, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. You're not mine, and I didn't draw you to myself, and therefore you simply cannot believe. No matter who your parents are or what your lineage is, no matter what you try to do, no matter what system you subscribe to, it is God who causes regeneration now natural man hates this truth because we love to be in control what does that mean like I can't just do it well no you can't just do it that's what Jesus is saying and because natural man loves to be in control and loves to decide okay I'll say the last word is after me no the last word is not after you the last word is after God who causes people to be born again and you see, because natural man loves control, coming to Christ is exact opposite of that. When you relinquish your control and you simply come and you say, God, you save me. It's not that I'm going to try to be better. I'm going to try to change. I'm going to commit going to church or reading through my Bible in a year. None of that matters. Now, if God regenerates you and changes you, everything changes. But unless he does, you cannot come. So which of these responses characterizes you? Are you like the world who doesn't recognize Christ? I mean, sure, I mean, he was there. Sure, he came 2,000 years ago. I mean, he did some great things, but you know what? I got Super Bowl in an hour, or 12 minutes, actually. Yeah? Or maybe like the Jews who knowingly rejected Christ because they saw everything. He was in their presence, and they rejected him. Or are you like this third group that believed in him? And received him. You see, this is the only group that got a privilege of being children of God. The rest remained 
children of wrath. You see, if today you believe in Christ, you have nothing to be proud of. Because it was he who caused you to be born again. You see, sovereignty of God does not make one proud. Sovereignty of God humbles you in salvation because you recognize, listen, I was out there and I was lost. And unless you would have gone after me and have taken me, I would be just like the world, but for the grace of God go I. That's those who believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation. So if you are here today and you trust Christ, praise him because he opened your eyes. And the only reason you see is because he was good to you. Not because you made the decision to follow Jesus. But you know what? If you don't trust Christ, there's nothing you can do. The only thing you can come is you can plead that Christ would save you. If you want to be saved, it is the Spirit of God who works in your heart. And all you can do is say, Lord Jesus, I can't do nothing, but I need you to save me and plead that he would save you. And the same Jesus who says that all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So come, believe. Repent, and to you this promise will be given. You will be a child of God. If you know Christ, praise him because it is his work. He gave you the right to be a child of God. And if you don't know Christ, believe in him. Repent and be part of this third group. And you also worship Christ because salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen? Let us pray. We praise you, Father. We praise you, Son, and we praise you, Spirit, that you have intervened in our lives, that you have given us eyes to see this. We give you all the glory for that. And we ask for those who are still blind, you would do the same for them. Because you are a Savior. You have come into this world to save sinners. And these words were recorded so that sinners would hear and they would believe. We pray that you would do that, even today. For your glory. Amen.